As you know, at our church, we love to do expository preaching going through books of the Bible. We did 72 sermons in the gospel according to John. We've taken a break from expository preaching to do a series on the solas, the five solas. We'll be looking at the Psalms come Advent. And we're doing this series on the five solas because of the Reformation, the celebration of the 500-year anniversary when an Augustinian monk, priest and scholar Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That was an act of, of declaring or, or, or announcing that he wanted to have a public theological debate. Out of that incident, out of that that nailing of those theses came an explosion of, of reclaiming truths of the gospel and in many ways still being reformed, still bringing uh, the truth of the gospel to this very day. Luther was appalled by the expansion of sales of indulgences. In his day, they would have indulgences and sell indulgences for sins that have been committed. But they expanded that during Luther's time when they were uh, allowing for indulgences to not only... Uh, forgive you of sins committed, but sins that you have not yet committed, and that they were selling indulgences for you to help Aunt Mary and Uncle Jim get out of purgatory early who had died ahead of you. And they would use terms like, you love your aunt, don't you? Your grandmother now is suffering and you could help. And they would sell these indulgences and they were ways in which you can reduce the time in purgatory as you were there being purged purgatory for your sins you could get a plenary um, indulgent which was a full pardon or a partial reduction of punishment depending on your gift and when you purchase these indulgences of course by the pope the successor of christ the vicar of christ on earth you were given a merit you were given merit a satisfying merit to offer to god to release you from purgatory from suffering for the punishments of your sins. And of course, this treasury of merit was in heaven. The keys were contained and held by the Pope. And inside these treasury of merits were the merits of Christ, the merits of Mary, the merits of the saints, the merits of the martyrs who had gone on before them. And the, the, the Pope had the, abundant, or had the ability to sell you these indulgences to help you and to release you from purgatory earlier. It was these 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg dog door that was a confrontation of the sale of indulgences. And from this reformation, from the nailing of these 95 theses, as years went on, was an explosion, as I said, of truth, of gospel truth. And out of the reformation came five solas. It was a way in which the reformers and those after the reformers were to categorize or to succinctly say what their convictions were according to Scripture. There are five of them, as you see. Sola Scriptura means alone. Sola means alone or only. Scripture alone, because the Scriptures are the only inspired Word of God. It alone has the authority and infallibility and sufficient for the church. It has the final say was the Scriptures, not tradition, but the Scriptures. Sola gratia, which we saw last week, was grace alone. That salvation cannot be merited, but it is by God's unmerited love and mercy that he grants us salvation and forgiveness of our sins. This week we're looking at sola fide, which means faith alone. It's closely related to, to sola gratia, but it really is about the actual method or the way in which God does rescue us from the just and right punishment for our sins. 
Next week will be solas Christos, meaning that it's Christ alone. Who's the mediator between God and man, not the priest, that you alone can trust in Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. And finally, soli Dio Gloria in two weeks means that everything that God does is for his own glory. It is for the, the, uh, the, 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 his majesty, his beauty, his uncalculable worth, to see him in who he really is. All of these realities, all of these five solas that come from the scripture answer the most important question that anyone can ask. But here's the problem. I talk a lot about seeking the questions of the culture, about understanding people in the culture, about asking questions like, what are your values? What are your fears? What are your hopes? Asking questions to know what idols people have and looking for ways to bridge that culture for the cause of the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a particular culture, in a particular people. It's very important to know. If we are seeking to demonstrate the gospel in love and declare it in truth, it's good to know the questions. But sometimes, the questions that are being asked today, things like, should I marry? Should I not marry? Should I remain single? Where do I go to school? Where do I live? Where do I go to work? What church do I go to? All those may be good questions, but they're not the most important question. There is a question that is the most important question in the universe. No other question can come even close. This question that I speak of was one of the questions, the question that drove Martin Luther to say that he actually hated God. This question is one that may not be asked, but we must find a way to bring everyone to this one universal shattering question. What is that question? How can I be forgiven and reconciled to Almighty God? It was the question of the jailer in Acts 16. Paul and Silas singing in jail. They were, they were in chains and an earthquake shook. And the chains were, were, were broken and the doors were open and the jailer thought they had escaped and was going to kill himself. And he sees Paul and Silas and he rushes in and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Luther was a man who studied scripture. Luther was a man, he was a scholar, a priest who knew the law of God. He knew what the scriptures were saying. He knew that he was a sinner, that he had sinned against God, deserving God's wrath. And this Persistent realization plagued Luther with an overwhelming sense of guilt. Theologian Anthony Hokema describes it this way. Martin Luther, he said, had tried everything. (laughs) Sleeping on hard floors, going without food, even climbing a staircase in Rome on his hands and knees, but to no avail. His teachers at the monastery told him that he was doing enough to have peace of soul. It's been said that Luther would go to the confession and they would say, look, go back and really do something bad before you come back. He was there all the time. But it says he had no peace. His sense of sin was too deep. He had been studying the scriptures, the Psalms, Romans. And they often mentioned this righteousness of God. And the term bothered him. He thought it meant God's punitive righteousness, whereby he punishes sinners. And Luther knew that he was a sinner. So when he saw the word, the righteousness of God in the Bible, it says, he he writes, he saw red, end quote. Luther got more and more depressed as he read Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that said, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. 
Luther discovered, though, that the verse before Romans 1.18, verse 17, he realized that the righteousness of God that Paul had in mind was not, was not God's punitive justice which leads him to punish sinners, but rather a righteousness which God gives to the needy sinner and which the sinner accepts by faith. No longer did Luther need to, to, to seek the basis of the peace for his soul in himself and in his good works. He realized that it was on the spotless, perfect righteousness of Christ, earned by Christ, which God gives to us by faith alone, in Christ alone. How does one come to the courtroom of heaven as a sinner and yet be justified is the question. The answer in the New Testament is through faith alone. So the reformers would say, we are saved by grace alone, Ephesians 2. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, standing on Scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, we said was the formal principle because everything and all other solas are known through the Scripture. But the sola fide, faith alone, they say is the material, they said was the material principle. Because it was the central doctrine, it was the hinge, it was the doctrine of the Reformation that changed everything. And the question of how can we be right with God? So if you have a Bible, um, we're going to be in three passages to save time. I'm not going to read them now ahead of time, which I usually do. We're going to read them when we get there. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible from the back, it's on page 548. Romans 3, 548, page 548. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. That's on page 568. And maybe when I get there, I'll make that announcement again. Um, and then finally, James. I've got to deal with James chapter 2, verses 18, uh, 19 through 24. Or 18 through 24. We'll, we'll see how far we get. I don't know how far we're going to get. I ran out of time in the first service. But what else is new? Okay, so this is what we're going to do. Four things, four headings we consider justification by faith. Let me go back one. Okay, the need, the need for justification. Without the need for justification, we're wasting our time. Next, the meaning of justification. What does it actually mean according to the scripture? The grounds for justification. And finally, the means, the meaning, but the means of justification. How do we receive it? By faith. We'll see in a moment. So number one, when you're in the book of Romans and you're reading Romans, the, the, the letter written to Rome from Paul, the apostle, you will get to chapter three and you will realize that Paul lays out a very theological discussion and implications that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He talks about our condition and our corruption in the first three chapters. He says that the religious people are sinners, the irreligious people are sinners, the Jews, the Gentiles, the atheists, everyone, he says, is going to stand before the judgment throne of God. And the judgment throne of God, the justice of God, is God's perfect moral standard. And by that standard, we are all deserving condemnation. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, my mouth, your mouth, may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable, held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no matter how much you try, no human being will be justified, as that word, in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, you know, the old, you know don't touch that wet paint, you're like, we all do it. The problem in humanity was simple. 
Simple to Luther, simple to, John, uh, to, to, to uh, Paul. It's sin. That we're sinners, we're deserving wrath, uh, nothing we can do to save ourselves, and God's righteous requirements cannot save us, it only condemns us, and therefore we all will stand before the judgment found guilty, and there's not a slightest chance in no way can we possibly, by the basis of what we do, be accepted by a holy God. Now the scripture is crystal clear that God is holy, God is pure, God is righteous, God is good. It means that he is straight, he is lawful, he is just, he is perfect, he is wonderful, he is glorious. It also means that he himself is the final standard of what is right. We don't get to choose. Well, this may be right, this may not be right. If God spoke, whether it's right or wrong, he is the one, he is the creator of us all, and he has the final say in what right or wrong. If you think of legal terms, he rules rightly, he, he is just, he is honorable, he is noble, he is faithful, he is trustworthy. Listen to these verses. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Deuteronomy 32. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Isaiah 45. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, none besides me. The Apostle John writes that this is the message we have heard. We proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God does not do evil in any way and to any degree. And in him there is no evil, there is no darkness, there is no sin. He does allow and permit, as we see all around us, wicked people to form wicked deeds. But the scripture says he is sovereign, which means he overrules it all by his own wise and holy ends. And I've said this many times, if you don't have a category in your brain that God is sovereign, moving everything according to his plans and purposes, yet man is responsible for his stupid decisions, my stupid decisions, you won't understand scripture. And you say, well, how do those two go together? I don't know. When you get there, you could ask them. But that's what the scriptures teach. And I rest in God's sovereignty, even in the midst of a crazy world. And that's what it means by God is righteous. And that's what Luther was dealing with. Luther, Martin Luther, was reading the scriptures, particularly in Rome, Romans and in Psalms, and was understanding this holiness, this, this purity, this, this unbelievable righteousness of God. As Isaiah 6, when he sees, uh, Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, he says, I am undone. The holiness of God makes us undone. And, and it was this stark contrast of the holiness of God and the guilt that Luther knew he had that drove him to depression. James uh, Buchanan wrote in his book on justification, he said this, the best, prep, the best preparation for the study of this doctrine, the doctrine of, of justification by faith alone, is neither great intellectual ability nor much scholastic learning, but a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God, end quote. And, and when that reality hits our hearts, we can see why justification is central to the gospel. Because it answers the fundamental question. How can sinful Lou, who's required to be righteous without sin, be righteous before a holy God and be just before him? And the answer lies in justification according to the scripture. So there's a need that must be felt. Luther felt it. And that pressed him on to know and it pressed him on to the place of once he understood what justification was, everything fell into place. So this, this monk, this scholar, Martin Luther, who says he hated God, was reading in Romans. 
And he's captivated by Romans chapter 1, verse 16 in his writings. And he writes, <coughs> for I am not ashamed. This is, this is Paul writing this, Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in it meaning in the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, God's requirements, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just, those righteous, those justified shall live, how? By faith. He's quoting Habakkuk in the, New, in the Old Testament. And Luther was dealing with this verse, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, he was in Erfurt, Germany in the 1500s and, and, and didn't really quite understand what it meant, but every time he read the rights of God, he was depressed. He imagined himself under the right wrath of God. And it's said that one day he was lying in Italy, he had gone to Rome, and he, was, he, was, he felt soon he was going to die. He was so depressed. And he kept saying to himself over and over this verse of Habakkuk, of, of Romans, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous one shall live by faith. And it was God's good providence that in Rome, excuse me, in, in 1511, while he was in Italy, he left that room and he went out to a staircase. <coughs> excuse me. It was at St. John Lateran Church. While he was there, the Pope had given indulgences for those who would climb up the steps, the pilgrims who would make it to Rome and climb up this giant staircase that was said to have come from Jerusalem. It was the staircase that was leading to Pontius Pilate. They said the blood of Jesus was actually stained on this staircase. They took it from Rome, excuse me, from, from Jerusalem and they brought it to Rome. And, and, and pilgrims would go there, you can still see it today, they still do it, and they would climb up these steps on their knees praying and kissing the steps and, and doing penance with indulgence coins. And when they reached to the top, they would give their, uh, their, their money and they would receive indulgences. So Luther said, I'm going to do it. And there he goes up the steps. And it, it says in his writings that he just kept saying to himself, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. The righteous and the just shall live by faith. And it was said that when he got to the top, he stood up and he said out loud, but who knows if it is true? R.C. Sproul writes this. He said, Luther's visit to Rome was one of the most disappointing episodes of his life. He was overwhelmed by the obvious presence, presence of corruption among the clergy there in the city. And all the attempts that he had to find peace with God through his work in the monastery was dashed into smithereens with the delusionment that he experienced there, end quote. So Luther gets to the top, who knows, and leaves Rome and heads back to Wittenberg. Plagued with the just shall live by faith, the righteousness of God. Luther shortly came to realize that the righteousness of God that Paul wrote about was the work of God's grace, of making righteousness available to those who receive and embrace it, not through their moral achievements, not through the monastery or activity, but passively through faith in Christ is how a person can be reconciled to God. And one of the ways, which is very interesting, that Luther and many in the Reformed movement came to realize that is they went back to the original language of the New Testament. In that day, and, and even some today, um, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church uses what is called the Latin Vulgate. It, it is, it is the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, written from the original language, which is Hebrew in the Old Testament, some Aramaic, and Greek New Testament. They, they turn... They, they, 
they um, translated the, the God-inspired word into Latin. And they all used Latin as their scripture. The problem was, and Luther found out, that the word justification in Latin means to make righteous. Ustat vacar, ustat justice vacar, meaning makes, means to make righteous. And the Latin fathers were under that understanding that this is what happens when God makes you through the sacraments, through the church, and makes unrighteous people righteous. God's making it, working his way, working with you to make you righteous. But when Luther turned to the Greek, the God-inspired word, dukaisina, in, 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 in the noun form of dukeo, in the verb, he found out it's not someone, it's not, to make someone righteous. The word justification or righteousness is to regard righteous, to, to count or to declare righteousness. Some of your translations say to impute righteousness. And this statement and that moment was an awakening to Luther. Luther came to realize as millions after him, even some before him, that Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, that intrinsic righteousness, but the righteousness of God that he freely, by his grace, unearned to people who don't have their own righteousness, but are trusting in his righteousness. Luther called it the alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of you. That is the righteousness of Christ. So justification is the opposite of condemnation. To justify is to pronounce a verdict of innocence. Justification, a person is not someone who's made righteous, but declared righteous. It's not a process, it's not, but an act. It's not a process, it's an act. It's not the impartation of righteousness through faith plus works, but the imputation of the righteousness of God by faith alone. Luther came to see this, and it exploded in his soul. And he writes this, I saw the connection, I I mentioned this two weeks ago, I want to say it again. He said this, Luther says this, I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have to gone through the doors into paradise. All of scripture, he says, took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, I, I, I can't do it. God, your demands are too much for me. He hated God. He said, it. now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul, Romans 1, 16, became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. It wasn't the demands of God. It was the righteousness that God would give to a sinner who repents and believes. And let me tell you, family, that is earth-shattering difference between other religions, whether it's Islam, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Hinduism, philosophy, secularism, or even Judaism, is that the eternal Son of God justifies, makes us right by grace through faith alone. And a good definition is this, biblically. It's an act of God by which he judicially declares sinners to be righteous, by grace, through faith, alone, because of Christ alone. See, that there's a difference between justification being a gift and the sanctifying process of you becoming more like Jesus. 
Just justification is an act by God declaring you not guilty. But let me tell you, you only got to be around with me for about an hour. And you know I'm not there yet. Right? That I'm in the process of sanctification. I'm in the process of growing more like Christ. My position is justification. The process is an internal change that's going on in my soul as I repent of sins and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Read scripture, gather together. I'm growing. But justification is that act by which God declares me forgiven and right before him. Justification is a declaration. It's a, it's a divine decree that cannot be altered. And Paul said it emphatically in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified Forgiven, made right with God. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of justification. And Luther's eyes just opened up when he's seen. It's not something you make, it's something you declare. The grounds of our justification. You know, religion and morality will not make us right. Seeking to be our own God and Savior. Ways in which you could try to work really hard. Or just ignoring God and running your own way. will never in our own strength or merit justify our lives so the question how can a holy god how can a just god be reconciled to sinners like me a god is so absolutely holy he cannot dwell in sin he cannot receive sin who is absolutely just and when we talk about god being just it's just like in our own culture when we talk about justice we talk about doing what's right and punishing sin so if somebody commits murder kills someone in your family they go to court he's found guilty and the judge says ah don't worry about it. You would say he's a just judge or an injustice judge. He'd be unjust. So God is just. He can't just say, oh, you know, I see all the killing and raping going on around here, but it's okay, it's no big deal. He just overlooks it. In fact, Proverbs says, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. If God intends to justify sinners, he must have some legitimate judicial basis for doing so. John Stott says, justification is not synonym for amnesty, which is pardon without principle. A forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoings and declines to bring it to justice. No, he says, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. When God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying they are not sinners after all. He's pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law because... He himself, God himself in his son, borne the penalty for their law breaking. Do you see that? Turn with me to Romans. Now I'm going to read this to you. Romans chapter 3. You see it on the screen as well. How can a holy God deal with sin and still have sinners come into the presence, his holy presence? Very simply. Romans 3. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Every mouth will be stopped. The whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be satisfied. No human being will be satisfied in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all, that's everybody in this room, including me, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, how? By his grace, unmerited as a gift, through the redemption, the buying back, the, the deliverance that's in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. Propitiation is just a fancy word for saying atonement, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, by his blood, to be received by faith. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Look at verse 26. He might be just. He, he, he's, if God's not just, God is not worthy of worship. Right? So he's just, he is holy, he is perfect, he will punish sin because that's what justice demands, punishment of sin. So he is just and the justifier. See what it says? He, he is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the cross where Jesus died and paid our redemption and died as our propitiation, our substitute, was the judge saying, guilty, Lou, guilty of sin, and taking off the robe and God himself going to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, dying for our sins in our place as our substitute. Therefore, he could say, I'm just, sin's paid, and I'm the justifier, I'm dying in your place. That's what Romans tells us. That we, look at verse 20, uh, jump down to Romans 4. I don't know if I have that up. I, <coughs> Romans 4.22, it says this. Paul talking about Abraham believing God and, 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 and um, uh, holding on to God's promises and being justified. He says this, chapter 4, verse 22 of Romans. That is why his faith, that's Abraham, was counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him was not written just for his sake, Abraham, but ours too. It was counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord who delivered him up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised them for our justification. You see, the cross of Christ upholds the justice of God and demonstrates his love by being the one who is just and the one who justifies. And this word, this word to count is to impute. So in other words, when it says it was counted to him as justice or, or just that word accounted is an accounting term. It means that there's a ledger and you have, your, you have your debits and you have your credits. And what Paul is saying is it was counted to Abraham on the side of credit through Jesus Christ. We have lots of debts, but Jesus is credit imputed to our account. God's law tells us that we'll never have that righteousness, that, that, that side of, of, of the ledger, credited to us unless someone does it for us that's the gospel because christ is perfectly righteous he lived a life that we could never live without sin over and over we see in scripture that's his righteousness his perfect life that's been imputed to us one of my favorite verses in second corinthians five twenty one, paul says this he god the father made him jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel is that God declares us to be just on the basis of Christ imputed righteousness. That's the good news. That's the good news. That it was his righteousness, not mine, but his. Some people have been taught and, 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 I, and I just want to share this with you. Some people have been taught that the imputation of righteousness of Christ that's been given to me is not imputation, but an infused righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church in the days of, of the Reformation as well today say that you've been ba- born, you've been baptized, you follow the sacraments and the infusion of righteousness and God is making you Again, back to the Latin, making you righteous, making you somehow being justified. And you go in and out of justification, not the imputation of Christ. 
You say, no, no, it's imputed. It's not infused. And you say, well, I, you know, I, no, come on. I, I, well, does it really matter? Yes. It really matters. If you're working with God for your salvation or God's imputing the righteousness of Christ is the hinge of the gospel, of the good news, and the truth of Scripture that it's imputed righteousness, not infused righteousness. It is because that Christ lived a perfect life. Now listen, Jesus' brothers and sisters, his enemies, his mother, and those around him worshipped him as God in the flesh because they knew he was sinless. No one's worshipping at my altar, I can tell you. Nobody. But Jesus lived a perfect life that we could never live and therefore died an atoning death that we ought to die. He alone lived the life perfectly. He is fully God and fully man. Therefore, he has a right to forgive sins and he has a right to atone for sins because he is God and man in the incarnation. And because of his life, his life is imputed to us. That's exactly what happened on the cross. Martin Luther's eyes exploded when he see that. He called it the, in Latin, the simul justice et peccator. Simul means, comes from the word simultaneously. We are simultaneously just and sinner. There is a forensic reality to the death of Christ in my place, his resurrection from the grave, that God sees me now, not in my righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ and declares me forgiven and just and reconciled to him. But yet... You only have to be with me for an hour, and you're like, yeah, you got some work to do, right? I'm like, yeah, I know, but in God's eyes, in a way, I'm both righteous in his eye, justified because of Christ, and I'm working on stuff like everybody else, right? He shed his blood, he died for my sins, and he rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. He's our redeemer. He paid the guilt. If you get an F in your final grade, you're in college, you're in your last class, you needed to graduate, and the teacher goes, you know what? You didn't participate, you get an F. And then the college teacher calls you in, and they're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to erase that F. And that's all they do. It's not going to be helpful. But if they erase the F and they put an A, that's a different story. It's one thing to be, have a debt Forgiven, it's another thing to say I'm rich. Justification is not merely the cancellation of my unrighteousness or my forgiveness, it's the imputation of Christ's righteousness because we need righteousness to enter into the presence of a holy God and Jesus got it covered by faith alone in him alone. Now, turn with me if you can to James chapter two. I wanna hit this for just a couple of minutes because this is really important. James chapter two. What my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and, and I want to be really careful. We love Catholics. My mom's a Catholic, loves the Lord. Uh, you know, we're not talking about people that love Jesus, and, and we're talking about the teachings of the church um, that is uh, erroneous to that of the gospel that came forth through the Reformation. So I want to be really careful. If you ask a Catholic, and I, I, even my mom, and say, do you know that the Council of Trent in the 1500s declared me, Lou, Pastor Lou's preaching justification by faith alone, that you're going to hell for doing that? They would probably say, no. I'm like, yeah, they did. So I'm condemned to hell for preaching justification by faith alone. But most people don't hold to that. But that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And what they do is they go to James chapter 2, and if you're there with me, 
and they love to quote verse 24. James chapter 2, verse 24. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And they say, see, that's what James says, that your works plus faith is what justifies a person. And at first glance, you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems like a contradiction to me. I mean, didn't the apostle Paul and James, like, know each other? Like, do they know what they wrote? I mean, Paul says in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Luther translated that verse, we by, justified by faith alone. Wow, Paul. Paul writes in Philippians 3.9, that he be found in Christ not having an own, his own righteousness, which comes from the law keeping or the law, but righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, Paul, have you read James? He's saying the righteousness is in Christ, in union with Christ, in faith with Christ. So what do we make of that? Well, it's easy. It's not easy, but there is a clear explanation for that. First realize that James, the the Lord's half-brother, and Paul are writing to two very, very different audiences. They're writing to two very different problems in the church. They're writing to two very different questions that are being asked. Paul in Romans and in Galatians is bad. When he talks about faith alone, will justify you in Galatians and Romans. What he's talking about in those, in those books is against legalism, against the Jewish people and other people who'd say, if I'm only circumcised, if I obey the law, I'll be right with God. And, and Paul says, your faith alone justifies, not your work. I don't care about your circumcision, you're reading your Bible, you're going to church. It is by faith alone. James, on the other hand, in his book, is dealing with fake faith. Those who say, yeah, I read the call, I I bowed my head, I'm a a believer, I'm this and that, and nothing's changed. And James is like, your faith, you read the book of James, your faith that has changed nothing is dead. Dead faith, lifeless faith, not genuine faith. So when James used the word faith, he used it in a sense of living faith, genuine faith, and fake faith that's dead faith, that can't justify anyone. Paul is writing against legalism and he's just dealing with living faith. So there's a big difference between the two. In fact, Paul knows the connection between faith and works. He writes several times, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Then he goes on to say that we're creating Christ Jesus for good works. Titus 3.5, he's writing to young Titus, the new pastor. He said, God saves us not because of works, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to God's mercy, the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Galatians 5, 6, the Apostle Paul again. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, Jewish people, nor uncircumcision, Gentiles, counts for anything. But what counts, Paul? Only faith working through love. The only kind of faith that counts for justification is the kind that produces love and works and bears the fruit of the Spirit. That faith alone justifies, but it's never alone, Calvin would say. It's always yielding and always giving uh, fruit of the Spirit. The faith that justifies will produce itself in works and love 
if given the opportunity. For the man on the cross who died with Jesus, he looked at the Christ and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're a king. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. If the guy hadn't died, five years later, he would have been working and loving Jesus. They would have said, you know what? It was genuine. That, that repentance and belief in Jesus was genuine. But look at him. His life's been changed. Look down with me in James chapter 2 again. He says in verse 24, a person is justified by what works. But look, look before that. Look what he's talking about. James is, James is called practical religion because there's so much in James about just, he says, look, man, if you got somebody who's got a lot of money, you say sit up front and you got poor sitting in the back, you ain't really saved. You're kidding yourself. You know, like he's talking about living faith, what that looks like. That's what James is all about. And James says in verse 21 that Abraham, look what it says, James chapter 2, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, verse 22, was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his work. Completed means mature. There's a genuine faith that saves and a faith that is dead that cannot save. That's what, that's what even he says in chapter 2, verse 14. And what James is saying to that church is y'all think that just because you raised your hand at some rally or you signed a card, there's been no change in your life. That kind of faith is dead. Don't count on it justifying you. He even uses the term justification in a broader sense because he says, look at Abraham. Do you see that? He said, when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Now, something very interesting. I don't want to lose you. In Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham believed God and was justified. And what he's talking about is in Genesis 15 when God came to Abraham and gave him the covenant, the grace covenant that had nothing to do with works. It was by the grace of God. Genesis 15. Romans 4, Paul's talking about Genesis 15 when God declared Abraham righteous by faith. Okay, got that? James is talking 30 years later when he offered up Isaac on the mountain and saying that his work there justified him. What he's saying is the very thing that Abraham did, the life of faith that he lived, showed clearly that back in Genesis 15, it was real, it was genuine because of the life of which he lived. You see the difference? It's evidence of his justification. So John Calvin came up with the saying, I think it stands today. You look at Romans, you look at James, and you say this. It combines the two. We are justified by faith alone. That's what Paul would say. We are justified by faith alone. But faith that justifies is never alone. It shows itself as evidence, but it's not justification. There's a difference. So there's a crime. You come home from your house, you see the glass is broken, shattered all over the place. You're like, oh my word. You walk in the house and there's stuff, your drawers, this happened to me, by the way, uh, not recently, but you know, things are all over, there's a disarray. And you're like, oh boy, we had a burglary. How do I know that? Because of the evidence. The evidence isn't the crime, the criminal was, did the crime. But the evidence showed forth the crime. It's the same thing with justification. If there is genuine living faith, James would say, there'd be evidence of that genuine faith. No one's denying the fact that there's evidence. But what Paul teaches, that that evidence doesn't save you. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. That's what Paul would say. 
It is only it is only the imputation of Christ. It's not infused, it's imputed, and yet it lives a life of faith. So where does works fit in? Very clearly. Sola fide means we are saved by grace through faith, but not through a faith that is alone. Our salvation is made clear, evident by the changed life. And how do we actually receive that? Lastly, faith alone. In one sense, we say by faith alone, but we don't really mean only faith alone per se. When the scriptures and the reformers speak of faith alone, it means not the faith, the means of our salvation that saves you, that makes you right with God, but faith in the person, in the grounds of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So salvation comes through our faith alone, and faith is that unique, single, solitary instrument by which we receive God's gracious gift of salvation through the work of Jesus, his perfect life and his death on the cross. Faith is the channel by which justification comes to us. Faith is not good works, but it's essential. Now look with me to Ephesians chapter two, and we're almost done. It is by grace, unearned, that's what grace means, unearned, unmerited, favor of God. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, that's the channel, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the channel, faith alone. B.B. Orfields, a professor, late professor of theology in Princeton, said this. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ, Christ himself that saves through faith, is the instrument by which we hold on to Jesus, end quote. Faith is not notorious, it is the work of God. And it is the means, it is the channel in which we see, believe, and trust in Jesus Christ. So let me wrap it up with this illustration for you. It's Veterans Day, or it's Veterans Week. And our brave military are out in Afghanistan patrolling. They get hit, and there's a prisoner, excuse me, a soldier's taken prisoner by the Afghans, and he's taken into a dungeon, and he's chained up. Months go by. He's in a dark dungeon for months. And as the months go by, he hears gunshots in the middle of the night. And as the gunshot rings, all of a sudden the door gets kicked in and in comes three Navy SEALs. Let's go. He's like, I, I'm following you. And out he goes into the door. He's out the door. He goes up. He's following the Navy SEALs up to the top of the roof. And there, a ladder hanging. And the guy's like, get on. Get on the ladder. Let's go. Let's go. And you're like, um, okay. And, and you, you trust them. You see what's going on. You get on the ladder. And away to safety you go. You decide to write a memoir of your escape of your rescue are you going to say i had such tremendous faith i listened to those navy seals i believe what they were going to say and my rescue had to do with what i did and how much faith i had in them or i had in myself you i hope you don't you'd be like no it was because they are awesome their expertise all that they did all that they were able to do to rescue me to safety. The Navy SEALs were the ones who brought you from the dungeon to safety. It allowed you to climb the ladder was their expertise, their bravery as Navy SEALs that rescued you. Well, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross as an atoning substitute for your sin, where he propitiated, he, he died as a ransom, he died as an offering, he died as a, a substitute bearing our wrath. He is the only substitute. He alone can justify a sinner. And he wants to, and he loves you. But we have to see a need. And we have to understand it's the imputation, it's not yours. And there has to be humility where you fall at his feet and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Your death on the cross, your resurrection from the grave, your gift of salvation is nothing I have done. It is purely by your imputation of my sin. Let me tell you what that looks like as the band comes up. Kay Arthur tells a story about an assassin who wanted to kill Queen Elizabeth I. He said, man, I got a, I got a flawless plan. I'll wait I'll wait until the queen goes to bed, the candle's out, I'll get my dagger, and while she's sleeping, I will stab her and kill her, and then I'll jump out of the window and flee for safety. He thought his plan was flawless, but what he didn't realize that every night before the queen went to sleep, someone would search her room and her closet, and then all of a sudden, by the hand, somebody grabbed him, and out of the closet he came. He was brought to Queen Elizabeth and fell on his face and begged her, that she might extend to him her grace. The queen said, well, if I extend my grace to you, what do you have to offer me in the future? And with the keenness of a theologian, the would-be assassin said, your majesty, a grace that bargains and a grace that propositions would not be grace at all. She realized the wisdom and she said, sir, freely by my grace, I forgive you. Kayotha tells a story, grace freely given won a convert that day, and from that day forward, the man became the most devoted servant the queen ever had, end quote. We can't earn our salvation, but we see the rescue of Christ, it works in us to love. See, religion is, I'll obey, I'll follow the law, I'll do my best, I'll try to be good, and therefore God will love me and accept me and forgive me. That's religion. The gospel is God loves me and accepts me by the moral perfect work of Jesus Christ alone, and therefore I will love him in return. There is a giant difference between the two. One's guilt, one is love. Sola fide. Do you know him? Are you trusting him? Is this just biblical truth that is intellectual to you or has it really touched your soul? Do you see the need? Are you trusting in Christ? It'll affect your mind, your emotions, and your will in every area of your life. So as the band leads us in this song, let me, let me pray for our response that we will trust him today with all of who we are, that he loves me so much, he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you and rise again for those who have faith. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, as we sing these last two songs, we pray that, Father, you would work in us a faith that is real and that is genuine, uh, and not as a work but as a gift to us, Lord. We pray that we will trust not in ourselves but will rest upon the work of Jesus who loves us and died for us. Father, help us to look at the cross and see how broken and, and, and sinful we are and help us to look at the cross and see how loved and valued we are as well that you would go through such a length and joyfully receive us by faith into your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.